It's your favorite childbirth educator here, Joni Edelman, and this is Radical Childbirth Education. Education for parents and providers who want the down low on the low down. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast, and thank you for joining me. Your time is your most valuable resource, and I appreciate you giving me some of yours. A reminder before we get started that my Radical Childbirth Education course, which will begin in the beginning of March and run for four weeks, two hours on every Sunday, is now open for enrollment. I'll be limiting the enrollment in that class to 10 couples so that everyone can get the attention that they deserve. There'll be a Q and answer period after every session and opportunities for some one-on-one -on -one private consultations with me and lots of good uh, freebies with the class and some exclusive books and information that you can't get anywhere else. So you can check that out at 13, the number, moonsbirthwork.com backslash RCE, or just 13 Moons Birthwork, and then follow the menu there. Okay, today we're going back to Instagram for another follower question from the other day. Today we'll be talking about how to maintain privacy in the hospital. This is an issue not just in the labor room, but also in postpartum. How do I keep people from coming into my room? How much, how frequently should people be coming in my room? How much assessment and attention do I really need from people? And this is so important to talk about for a number of reasons. So let's dive in. The first thing, which I talked about a lot in the last episode, and we'll talk about all the time because it's so important, is that birth occurs in the back part of our brain. Not just the hormones, but the actions. They are primal and don't require any conscious thought. They don't require concentration. They don't require uh, working through intellectually. They don't require discussion. They are innate what we would call innate, right? So if you think of any other mammal birthing a baby, uh, the examples I like to use in my class are cats, dogs, we have cows, so I use cows a little bit too. Pretty much no mammal, with the exception of a few very large mammals, want to be in public giving birth. Privacy is what we would call a biological imperative. In other words, it's something that's biologically necessary. The exception to this rule is elephants and giraffes, which if you think about it logically, I'll give you a minute to think about it. Why would they not need privacy for birth? Well, because they're giant and privacy would be very hard for them to obtain. So what you find in the wild with elephants is that rather than the elephant going off to hide somewhere for birthing, the other elephants will surround and circle the elephant that's birthing to create sort of a protective space around her. Uh, I can't actually speak to giraffes. I don't know. I've never seen a giraffe birthing surrounded by other giraffes. And of course, in zoos, they're by themselves. But one of the important pieces of giraffes birthing is that the giraffe births standing, the baby hits the ground, that descent from the mother to the ground, A, breaks the umbilical cord, and B, startles the daylights out of the baby so that it immediately starts to breathe and stands up. 
one of the important features of being able to survive in the wild as a wild animal is being able to either hide or run from predators. So baby giraffes can walk pretty quickly, and that's why. But as far as humans and other smaller mammals go, privacy is a biological imperative. The reasons for this are anytime we have to think about something happening, right? So anytime we have to think about something happening in birth, anytime we have to process something happening, we have to go into that frontal lobe, which means that we're coming out of our primal brain and engaging thought process, right? Reason, logic, conversation. And whenever we do that, we're using the part of our brain where birth doesn't occur. So with that in mind, having interruptions in labor can be very detrimental to the process. And those interruptions can look like a lot of different things, right? It can be simple as someone walking in the room and asking you questions. We often, you'll hear doulas almost always tell clients to wait until they're in pretty active labor before they head to the hospital. Because if we get to, hosp if we get to the hospital too soon, then adrenaline, can actually sort of thwart our oxytocin and cause our contractions to space out or disappear entirely. Same goes for when you're in the room. Up until you're in very active labor, labor can be influenced pretty easily by adrenaline, and this is a biological protection so that if you need to get up and run, you can. Ideally, you don't have to. Once labor gets underway, from an evolutionary standpoint, our bodies, uh, all mammals' bodies, are designed to complete that active stage of labor more quickly than the early stage so that we don't spend a lot of time in a very, you know, vulnerable state. That being said, interruptions in the hospital can include anything from doors being opened, beeping, any sounds or distractions from other rooms, all of those things take us out of our brain because, of course, we are fundamentally alert to what's going on around us in order to remain safe. The human brain is specifically designed to recognize beeps and boops and loud noises as a sign of danger. Think of your smoke detector. And what do all of the hospital machines, what sound do all the hospital machines make? beeps and boops and other sort of frustrating sounds, right? But it doesn't even have to be your door opening. I was at a birth one time where any time the door on either side of the room was opened, the door of the room I was in would just make a very, very subtle click sound. And every time the mother would pop her head up and say, what's that? And of course, if we watched the contractions on the monitor, we would see that every time that happened, she would have a pretty significant gap in contractions maybe, right? Contractions might be four or five minutes apart, and then the door knock would happen, and all of a sudden they would be seven minutes apart or eight minutes apart. This is important in the long term because if you think about every interruption extending the distance between contractions by double, then you're looking at a double the length labor just from a logical perspective. So protecting privacy in the hospital becomes really important. And a lot of folks question how they can do this when there is so much assessment. So I'm going to give you a few really practical ideas for this and 
also hopefully empower you to know what you actually need in labor in terms of assessment. Keep in mind that the nursing staff is tasked with checking in on you and making sure that you don't need anything or that you don't have any concerns or issues. When it comes to monitoring, if, there, if you are on a, whether it's a wireless or wired monitor, I'm sure that every hospital, in America anyway, has a central monitoring station, which means there's usually one nurse, either the charge nurse or a head nurse, who is sitting at the nurse's station watching all of the monitors. That way, if anything is going you know, wrong in any room, they can see it happening. So coming in the room specifically to check on monitoring is not necessary. One of the problems that we see that frequently occurs, however, is depending on the kind of monitoring and the frequency of monitoring you've agreed to, if at some point your baby comes off the monitor, for example, if you are using the wired monitor and this involves one sensor on the top of your belly that is measuring contractions and one center towards the bottom of your belly, usually, depending on your baby's position, that's measuring the baby's heart rate. Now, should you at any point, let's say you're having a contraction and you need to lean forward to breathe and manage the contraction, so you're leaning against the bed, well, gravity will tend to pull this monitor away from your belly and create a gap in that central monitoring. So whether it's your nurse or some other nurse, there's someone watching and sees that space. All of a sudden, your baby's heart rate disappears. We're not going to go deeply into monitoring in this episode because that is its own whole episode. But just know that studies have been done that show that the perception of the nursing staff is that when they see your baby's heart rate disappear, they believe the baby has died which of course is preposterous because a baby doesn't go from being perfectly healthy to deceased in one second unless something very serious happens, like you get electrocuted. So that in mind though, for reasons that we'll discuss in other podcast episodes, they don't want there to be a gap in the monitoring. They don't want there to be a space where the baby's heart rate isn't being picked up. So it's quite common that at that point, someone will pretty quickly come to your room and open the door and say something like, I need to get your baby back on the monitor. Of course, this is disruptive. So without diving deeply into frequency of monitoring, let's just operate from a basic assumption that continuous monitoring is not actually evidence-based, nor does it produce better outcomes. That is factual. So from the jump, having monitoring that is intermittent, meaning periodic, protects you from some of those interruptions. If you have wireless monitoring, which is available not in all hospitals, but in some hospitals in America, then you're dealing with equipment that is Bluetooth operated, which means it is subject to the same sort of flaws that all Bluetooth is, which means sometimes it can disconnect. You get too far from the monitor base, something else is Bluetooth in the room, same problem. Nurses coming in to readjust the monitor. If you have wireless monitoring, you're likely to have continuous wireless monitoring because it's a sticky, adhesive device that's on your belly all the time. So 
Again, that's for another episode. But one of the ways that you can protect yourself is to have intermittent monitoring so that nurses don't have to pop in unexpectedly to, quote, get your baby back on the monitor. The other way to protect your space is simply to state your desire. For example, I would like my room to be empty except for you may come in to do an assessment once an hour, once a half an hour, once every two hours, whatever you would like it to be. Now, the next question that comes up for most people is how often is assessment quote unquote needed? And there is a fine line between what's needed and what the hospital requires as protocol and further what you might intuitively feel that you need. I have been in hospital births. I'm not talking about home births right now, but I've been in hospital births where we've done very little to no monitoring. And then, of course, many hospital births where we have continuous monitoring. And no monitoring, right, the absence of monitoring is something that you will come up, you'll fight, you have to fight for, um, and will come up against a lot of resistance for, again, for another episode. But just so that it is known to you, there is no amount of monitoring that is required. The hospital will say it's required, but again, as we've said before, you are absolutely an autonomous human being who can make decisions and accept or deny certain interventions or recommendations. That does not mean that the hospital will like it, but they don't have to. I like to say when I'm in the hospital and making hospital staff irritated that I'm not trying to get any more Christmas cards. I just want to make sure my clients get the births that they want. So in other words, I'm not trying to make friends with the staff at the hospital. I don't want to be their enemy. But if something that my client wants goes against hospital policy, I'm not afraid to, to fight for it. So the other tip for keeping people out of your room that I like to employ a lot and tell everyone about is to simply write up ahead of time and laminate a piece of paper that says something like, physiological birth in process, please keep interruptions to a minimum. This will discourage other people from coming in your room who might not need to be in there for any particular reason and will just send the message of essentially the foundation of what you're trying to do. The term physiological birth is not something most people in the hospital are even familiar with. A physiological birth assumes that birth physiology is not interrupted. In other, in other words, the hormones of birth are allowed to function as they naturally are meant to, and birth is allowed to proceed as it would normally and naturally. Most care providers in the hospital you will find don't even really understand what a physiological birth is. Nurses, physicians, everyone in the room has training in birth and nurses just like physicians get more training about the problems in birth than they do about the natural birth process, which means that a lot of folks don't have a good understanding of what, what's actually happening from a physiological standpoint, and very few births in the hospital are physiological, which means very few people have ever even seen one. I worked with a nurse 
in a delivery uh, several months ago who had been on orientation for five or six months with another nurse. She was a new nurse and had never up to that point even seen someone birth without an epidural. She had never seen someone push upright. She had never seen birth in its physiological state, which is a statement not just about the hospital, of course, but about us as well, because we aren't birthing physiologically. And my feeling about why we're not is mostly because we don't understand the importance of birth physiology, because no one is teaching it to us. There are a handful of educators and people out there that are telling the truth and talking about birth physiology and being really uh, forthcoming about what happens both in the mother and the baby's body during birth, but we're not having a lot of ongoing conversations about it. And if you aren't seeking that info out on your own, you might not find it. It's probably not going to be presented to you randomly unless you've built your social media around that kind of birth, it's not going to come up in your feed. And your physician certainly isn't going to be talking about physiological birth unless you ask. If for no other reason, there's just not enough time. So placing a sign on the door is another good way to avoid interruptions. Of course, it goes without saying that having a doula in the room is super helpful because she can sort of run interference between you and hospital staff. In the event someone, for example, opens the door and you're not ready for an assessment, a visitor, an exam, she can run over and tell them it's not a good time. The most important way to protect your privacy and your peace in the hospital, though, is just to state your preferences up front, to tell people what you want and what you don't want and what you're willing to accept and tolerate. Now, I always like to add a place for caveat. When I'm talking about birth and protecting the birth space and protecting yourself against interruptions, I'm really mostly talking about unmedicated natural physiological birth. Once you shift your plan to having an epidural or other interventions, you have disrupted birth physiology. And that means that risks of everything are higher. We'll have an episode all about epidurals, but just for now, knowing that if you deviate from a natural physiological birth and opt for pain medication, whether it be IV um, or an epidural, then your birth physiology has changed and your risks are higher. If you are having an induction, same goes for that. An induction is not physiological birth and comes with a greater set of risks. So. Let's talk briefly about postpartum. Same thing goes for postpartum. One of the really interesting and beautiful things about birth in a physiological birth is that when we get to the pushing stage of labor, excuse the roosters, I live on a farm, our body gives us a nice big adrenaline rush to get through pushing. But that adrenaline rush is not just for the pushing phase for you. That adrenaline is also for your baby. That adrenaline allows your baby to be born wide awake and looking for the breast. One of the baby's biological imperatives after birth is finding food. That's the reason why they will, left to do it, start searching for the breast very quickly after birth. Even though they don't need calories so much at that point, 
it's more about the discovery of the breast, building those mental uh, brain neurological connections about where the breast is and how to find it and latch onto it, and knowing that the food source is available. So your baby is born wide awake. Now at the about, about the two hour mark, both you and your baby will usually become quite tired. That's when the adrenaline takes a big dump and starts to go away. And this is when it's the great time to take a nap. Not surprisingly, this is also when you will transfer out of your labor room and go to a postpartum room in most hospitals, unless you happen to be in a hospital where it's all in one room or at a birth center where you're going home, or if you're at home, of course, you're staying home. The two-hour mark, though, is the point after which most of the things that could be problematic after birth, typically bleeding for mother and respiratory problems for baby, the risk of those things drops significantly after those first couple of hours. And at that point, everyone is ready for a nap. Unfortunately, that shift to the postpartum room means a new nurse, someone new to know, and of course, new assessments. Once you get settled in your postpartum room, your nurse will want to come in and do a full assessment of you and the baby, and then will want to continue to do vital signs repeatedly. Is this necessary? No. No, we know it's not necessary in a physiological birth because if it was, then home birth midwives would stay at home, right? And birth centers wouldn't discharge you. The best thing for you to do in those few hours after, the first two hours after birth, is to go to bed and take a nice long nap, both you and baby. Folks worry at this point, of course, that the, we need to wake the baby to eat. And that's generally not true. Babies know when they need to eat. They're driven to hunger the same way that adults are. They generally are not going to just sleep through eating unless they're medicated on their own. So if you've had a C-section, this might be a little bit different if your baby's sleepy or if you've had medication in labor. But in a physiological birth, the very best thing you can do is go to sleep. And what you'll find is that baby will sleep four, five, sometimes even six hours before it wakes for another feed. And I can tell you a funny story. When my first at home, when I had my first baby at home and the birth was over and everyone had gone home and we had had cake and we had had champagne and we had had pizza, I took the baby up to my room and went to bed. And having had my other children in the hospital, I had never had the experience of being left alone. I was used to being bothered in the postpartum period. And we fell asleep. We co-slept with our babies. And so the baby was in the bed between my husband and I. And I woke up six hours later in absolute terror, thinking the baby must have died. Because why hadn't the baby woken up yet? And then looked down, saw the baby realized she was just looking at me and probably had been making some noise that woke me up, letting me know that she had some early hunger cues, kind of smacking or just moving around. And she had a nice big nursing session and then we went back to sleep. So it can be kind of shocking when you're not accustomed to just allowing nature to do what nature does. And again, most hospital staff don't know that this 
is physiologically normal. Now, if you haven't had a physiological birth and you have had medication of some kind or another or a surgical delivery, this changes your postpartum period a little bit. But there's certainly no reason why you can't be left alone for at least two hours at a time. And so the second sign that you make for your postpartum door can say, we would like assessments only every two hours. Please allow us time for bonding and rest in between or something of that nature. That will allow you time for rest and bonding without disruption. One of the things that happens in the postpartum department is that there are lots of people coming in the room doing lots of things. You don't just have your nurse. You also have lactation in most hospitals. You have pediatricians. You have the person doing the hearing screen for the baby. You have the person doing the birth certificate for the baby. You have the person doing the blood work for the baby. And all of those people really add up and can become quite chaotic. So asking for your privacy is imperative. Remember that Given the opportunity, most of the hospital staff are just going to do what's convenient for them. They have a job to do and they have a lot of patients to see. So if they're running down the corridor seeing, you know, every room and your room is just one room in the list of rooms they're seeing, they're going to stop and do what they need to do for you along with everyone else. But you can certainly request that this be done differently for you. There is no problem with that. Does it create some inconvenience for the staff? Possibly. Does it matter? No. Again, we're not trying to get Christmas cards, right? This is your baby's birth. You only get to do it one time. It should be how you want it. What do you do if they won't leave you alone? If they keep coming in? Well, this is a hard question because it really means being firm. If your nurse isn't honoring your wishes around privacy, either during labor and birth or in the postpartum period, then what is easiest to do is to have your partner go find the charge nurse, go up to the nursing station on the floor, ask to speak to this charge nurse, and then just tell the charge nurse plainly, I would like another nurse. You do not have to give a reason why. You do not have to offer an explanation. The charge nurse might ask you why, but it doesn't matter. If they ask you why and you want to give an, an answer, you certainly can, but you can also just say she's not a good fit. That's perfectly reasonable. I've advised clients at times to do this when I could see that the relationship between the client and the nurse wasn't building trust and that the nurse's presence was causing more harm than good. And it is almost always much, much better to make a little bit of a fuss and get a change of staffing than it is to try to suck it up and just say, well, we'll wait for the next shift change and the new nurse coming in. They work for you. Your insurance or you are paying their salary, essentially, if you look at it from a wide angle view, which means that you should get the care that you feel you deserve. One of the biggest problems that I see in the hospital is that we walk in and we immediately surrender our autonomy. And the way that the hospital is set up actually encourages this, right? You walk into triage to be seen, you're in labor, and what's the first thing they ask you to do? Take off your clothes and put on a gown. 
Do they need you to be in a gown? Maybe yes, but also maybe no. It's part of hospital policy. But what are you going to do when you're in a gown? Are you going to get up and leave if you don't like something? Probably not. And the subconscious message that that disrobing sends is that we're not in charge anymore. So I always encourage folks to bring their own clothing and to tell the nurse, I have my own gown that I'll be putting on. And they normally won't fight you on it. If they tell you, if they do fight you on it, it might be something like, does that gown have access that we can get to if you want an epidural or IV? Or something to the effect of, well, you don't want to ruin your own gown, do you? And of course, your answer to that question is, I bought a gown especially for this purpose, or I don't care. There are hospital style gowns on Amazon and Etsy that you can find very, very easily that are very comfortable, very pretty, and help you remain a certain, you know, help you maintain a certain amount of autonomy and, you know, just self-direction in that process. Something happens to women psychologically when they're in their own clothing that is very powerful, right? When we're not meant to disrobe and be treated as a patient, then we do retain a certain level of power. So that's one of the ways that you can kind of remain autonomous even in a hospital setting. And the same in the room. Remember as you're going into your birth that you have the right to make choices and decisions even if those choices or decisions don't align with hospital policy and procedure. And even if that creates a little bit of discomfort for the staff, it's much better that you get what you want than the staff gets what they want. Protect your space, protect your energy, retain your power, and happy birthing. The information on this podcast should not be considered medical advice. Birth is not a medical event.